You can find Bobby after the services. He'll be out there. You can talk to him. He speaks very, very good English, um, so you don't have to worry about that. Um, if you use certain colloquialisms or whatever, he may, you know, not follow you, but, you know, that'll be fun. So anyway, uh, have a good time and say hi to Bobby and greet him after the service. <clears throat> We're going to go ahead and jump into our message today. I'm going to cut the video because I got way too much to say and not enough time today. Uh, this is be one of those messages where uh, I have 25 things I want to say and only time for 10. So what do I have to do? Talk faster. I'm just kidding. I won't do that to you. But since today, we're going to be talking about anxiety. You may have noticed that in the title in the little bulletin you received. Uh, I thought it'd be fun. It'd be fun to start in a fun place, you know, because you're going to get anxious about talking about anxiety. So here's what I did. I sat down and said, what are the top 10 things that I'm anxious about? Now, this is a real list, but not a real list, okay? Um, these are, there are plenty of things I'm anxious about, like whether or not my boys are going to grow up to love the Lord, or, uh, uh, you know, whether or not they're going to be able to get married one day, or, you know, whether or not, at what age will they finally be able to outrun me? You know, those things are real. This is somewhat of a fun list, even though every single one of these are real. So let's see how many of you connect with these things. All right, so top 10. Number one, number one, when my phone is at 1% battery. Now, what makes it worse, right, is we have these alarms, when it gets to 20%, it's like, ah, I got six hours of work left. How can I be at 20%? And then it goes to 10 and then five. And when you finally get one, you just throw the phone. You're just like, forget it. I can't survive. How am I? Have you seen that commercial? No internet? What am I going to do? All right. So there's, there's one. You may relate. All right. This also depends on where you are, by the way. If you're sitting at home on your couch, who cares? But if you're driving on your road like I was once and you need Google Maps and you have 5% battery and a half hour to go, you really start stressing out. Like, all right. I'll turn it off. I'll drive for 20 minutes. I'll turn it back on. All right, here we go. <clears throat> Number two, watching football, especially if, say, it's midnight and you watch your team go into overtime after getting dominated for almost the entire game and you're not sure they're going to pull it out and you don't know whether or not you're going to be able to wear the right shirt in the morning, <laughs> just theoretically. I could not go to bed till 1 a.m. last night. It's terrible, I know, but I just couldn't come down. I was like so anxious watching this game. Now, if you're a Browns fan like me or a Rams fan or a Raiders fan, it's not a problem. You know how the game's going to end. You don't have to watch it. <laughs> number three, number three. Now, this one may not make sense, but stick with me. Long hallways. You're like, why is that weird? It's weird because when somebody walks up the stairs or opens the door on the other end of the hallway, you have a problem. Do I say hi? Do I look at them? Do I stare at the ground? If I walk by and say good morning and they don't respond, do I look like an idiot? What if I don't look at them and I stare at the ground, then I look up, and I look at the ground, then I look up, and what if they do say hi? Oh, hi. What if I have a boogie hanging out of my nose? All right, we'll move on. So here's one. Wait, don't put it up yet. Spiders. Am I right or am I right? I mean, come on. How many legs and eyes does that thing have anyway? Now, you know this thing, right? It wraps up its prey and sucks out its blood. Do I need to say more? Now, how many of you are, don't like spiders? Maybe terrified of spiders? How many of you, when you see a spider, you call your spouse? So my wife does. I cannot stand killing a spider. I hate the crunching of its exoshell. Oh, I just like, ah. can we pick it up, capture it, and like poison it? Or okay, moving on. Number five, number five. Have you ever been in a conversation and had absolutely no clue what the other person was talking about? And what makes this moment worse is you faked it, and now you might get caught. And you, your pride is all up in the way, right? Because you can't swallow your pride and admit it. Have you ever been in a conversation where it dawned on you halfway through the conversation, you didn't know what they were talking about? You thought you were with them, you thought they meant this, you made a comment, and then it becomes clear to you, oh, we're talking about something else. Well, do you go back and say, oh, I totally misunderstood you? Or what if it becomes clear, as this happened to me recently, they were talking about something you completely disagree with, but now it sounds like you agree with them, and like, do I actually look like a fool and admit I had no idea? Okay, I'm the only neurotic person in the room. Moving on. <laughs> How about this one? Public restrooms. Do I even need to say anymore? Number seven. Number seven. Seeing somebody and knowing you should know their name, but you can't remember it. Is that not the worst? So I was at a youth ministry conference. I used to be a youth minister working with teenagers. There's like a thousand, over a thousand teens there. There were a hundred from my church. And this youth guy gets up and he starts speaking to the crowd. And he says, teens, students, let me tell you something. Anytime your youth minister comes up to you and he says to you, hey, dude, brother, homie, he doesn't know your name. And I'm sitting there going, shut up. 
Like, I got a hundred of them. You all, some of you are really mean to me. My first couple years here, so for those of you who weren't here, in my first 30 days here, they organized a meet and greet. And what that was is I stood in the gym with my wife and my brand new baby. And 250 to 300 people came through single file and met me. And people for two years would come up to me and say, do you remember my name? We met once. (laughs) I met 250 people in three and a half hours. And some would get offended, literally. Now, some would have fun with it. They're like, I'm going to ask you every week until you remember my name. I'm like, I'm going to pass this test one day. All right, all right. Number eight, how about going to the bathroom right after you preach only to realize that your mic was on? (laughs) Has that ever happened to you? Now, the first time isn't the one that makes you anxious because you absolutely trust that your tech guy has your back and he won't do it. He's running sound here again today, right? Love you, brother. (laughs) What makes you anxious is every time after that. (laughs) This may or may not have happened at a church near you. (laughs) Number nine, how about having the phone ring early in the morning and wondering if A, you missed an appointment, or B, somebody's dead or dying or sick, right? Then you find out it's the wrong number or whatever it is. I had this happen a couple months ago. My phone rang. I was actually sitting on the couch. I already woke up. It was kind of groggy asleep. Got a boy on each side. And my three boys were watching cartoons, and I get a text message. I'm like, who, who would be texting me today? I wonder who's dying. You know, what's going on? And uh, the gentleman was like, hey, it's, it's uh, 702. Am I at the right place? And then it dawned on me. I was supposed to be there at 7. I haven't showered. I haven't done anything. And I'm like, <gasps> You're in the right place. I'm not. But I'll be there in five minutes, and I made it. Amen, men? All right. Might have been 15 minutes. All right, number 10, last one, last one. Having, how about this? You drive down the road, you look in the mirror, and what's behind you? A police officer. What's the first thing you do? You don't look at the speed. What's the first thing you do? You hit your brake, and then you do what? Look at the speed and see how you did. Right? Because you're totally anxious. Like, oh. now I find all the time that I'm not speeding because I'm an amazing driver. <laughs> or that the cops around here are very generous. But it creates the stress, does it? Or you ever turn? Like, the other day I'm facing a cop. We're both turning. I'm turning left. He's turning right. And he's like waving me on. I'm like, no, no. It's, a, <laughs> it's an honor. Thank you for your ministry, sir. <laughs> he's no fool. He knows. <laughs> all right. So. Now, we've had some fun. Let's get into the nitty-gritty for a minute. Did you know that anxiety disorders, anxiety disorders are the most common mental illness in the United States? It affects 40 million adults, age 18 or over, so probably more when we count our kids. It's roughly 18% of our population, 18% of our population struggles with an anxiety disorder. Many of you in this room, again, statistically, it would be almost 20% of you. My guess is it could be higher. Did you know that anxiety disorders in the U.S. cost more than $42 billion a year? That's almost one-third of what we spend on the total mental health bill for America. It's about $148 billion, so it's almost one-third of that. Now, of that, follow me here, I know this is data, of that $42 billion, more than $22.84 billion, check this out, are costs associated with the re repeated use of healthcare services. You may be going, that is a very complex sentence. What does it mean? Here's what it means. So people with anxiety disorders are seeking relief for symptoms that mimic physical illness. Let me try to put it in another way. People who are f- experiencing anxiety are going to doctors because they're, they're experiencing uh, headaches, fatigue, sleeplessness, all kinds of physical, real physical things because they are stressed out and anxious. Sound like you? Now, here's the most fascinating thing in my studies this week. Um, I found this. According to the World Health Organization, a a survey done in 2002, so it's a little dated, but that's going to tell you it's probably not dramatically off from where we are today. So 18.2% of Americans experience anxiety uh, in any given year, but check this out. The little country to the south of us, Mexico, only 6.8%. Now, if you've ever been to Mexico, you've probably been to the resort areas. You haven't been to the majority of Mexico. It's a fairly impoverished country. You've got the hyper-rich at a very small percentage, and then pretty much everybody else. There's not a lot of middle class. You've got people struggling to make ends meet. There is a reason why many of their people are leaving their country to find employment in ours, whether legally or illegally. And yet, almost a third of them are anxious. One more, one more. So, according to the same survey, there were 14 countries surveyed, only 14, 
by the World Health Organization. Here's what they found. This was the most fascinating to me. Nigeria, Nigeria, only 3.3% of their population was anxious. So just to give you an idea, Nigeria's uh, per capita GDP, gross domestic product, is about $2,690. That equals 6%, 6% of the U.S. GDP per capita. And, and that may not make any sense to you, but this one will help. Okay, this is my last data point. In 2010, in 2010, 84.5%, so almost 85% of Nigerians were living on less than $2 a day. And only 3.3% of them struggle with anxiety. Could I suggest to you today, friends, that what we have going on in America is our abundance, and we have it, praise God, has actually stressed us out more than blessed us out. Here's why, okay? Let's just use social media as, a, as, a, as an example, not the reason, as an example. You go on Facebook, you go on Twitter, you go on whatever, Instagram, whatever your, you know, social media of choices, and what do you see? In a moment of scrolling, you see what everybody else is doing in the world or what everybody else thinks about the world like this. It immediately reveals to you all the ways you don't measure up. So you can see in a moment all your friends this week who are at Disney and you're sitting here in church. I think you chose better than them. But it shows you in an instant all your friends who are at Starbucks while you're out cutting your grass. It shows you all your friends who went on some fun escapade or bought some new thing or experienced something, and it leaves you with this constant wondering what you're missing out on. We have today stressed out our kids to the extreme. We have our kids in every social program, every club, every event, every opportunity, and we've told ourselves this is how you get scholarships for college, but yet colleges are costing more and more and more, and there's less and less scholarships. It's not really working, but yet we keep pushing anyway, don't we? We chose to put our son in half-day kindergarten, and this is no knock on the, son, the school that my uh, son attends. It's not here at KCS this year, so it is not at all a comment on KCS, but we kept getting phone calls from school administration asking us if we wanted to reconsider and put him in full kindergarten. We said, no, he's five. He's okay. We teach him at home. He'll learn with us. He'll be okay. But all the other kids are doing it. There's only like five. I'm like, really? You're going to pull out that everybody's doing a card? No, we're okay. This is not mandated by the government. We're so worried that our kids aren't going to measure up or keep up. We're so worried that we're going to miss out and not keep up. So we have these fake expectations about how we must live. Is it any reason why we're stressed? I believe it was C.S. Lewis who once said, everything you own requires attention. Now think about that for a minute. If you own more than anybody else in the world, and we do, and everything you own requires more attention, then all of your focus is going to more. My friends who own two and three and four homes, and I love them to death, but they're more stressed than anybody. The maintenance, the upkeep, the stress, the worry of making sure that it's clean, it's rat-free, it's bug-free, that the grass is cut, they're constantly taken care of. They spend all of their vacation time caring for the homes they own instead of just enjoying and relaxing and being a human. We think when we look at that, oh, if only. But the reality is our more is stressing us. Now, that's what I would call self-induced stress, you know? We have an abundance, and we constantly want more, so we constantly pursue more, we go after more. But there is real anxiety, and there is real stress. There is. You get a phone call, the loved one is sick, that you have cancer. Is that real stress? Absolutely. How about this? Your spouse comes home and says, I don't want to be married to you anymore. I, have, I hear that story all the time. Your pay is going to be cut. You've lost your job. Your car broke down. You don't have the money in the bank account. There's real anxiety. Then we go beyond that, and there are true anxieties built around ongoing traumatic experiences. You're in a home with a mean drunk, and you never know when they're going to snap and beat you. You live with an abusive person. It could be verbally or emotionally, and you never know when their barrage is going to come out and they're going to start tearing you down and cutting you down and yelling at you. You never know when your son or your daughter, who maybe is living in your basement, is a little bit older, is going to come home drunk or high or on drugs, and they're going to take it out on you or manipulate you. You never know when your spouse is addicted to that thing, their addiction is going to eat away at the money or what conniving is going to have to go on. I mean, the list could go on and on and on, right? I mean, there is maybe self-induced stress and anxiety, but then there's real stress and anxiety. 
Let me, let me just define anxiety for you for a minute. So what is anxiety? Anxiety is a sense of fear or apprehension that puts you on alert, okay? It's a sense of fear or apprehension that puts you on alert. Well, I tell you this all the time. You will worship whatever you fear. And here's why. Because at the end of the day, fear is worship. Whatever you're most afraid of, you will live your life in response to that thing. So if you are most afraid of being alone, then you will go out and get into a relationship with somebody you have no business being with and you know it because you're so afraid of being alone. And what happens in those moments is we stop trusting that God is actually God. Now, before you jump to a conclusion, I'm not saying, if you'll stick with me through this message, I will show you. I believe what many Christians have done is made it worse for people because we've told them you just don't have enough faith. You just don't pray enough. And I will show you by the end of this message what I believe a better path, a better path towards healing is. But let's talk for a minute about how this works. See, anxiety <clears throat> is a gift from God. I don't know if you knew that. Because see, in a moment, anxiety can serve you well. Something happens, and in a moment, your body goes into different states. And in those different states, especially in a heightened sense of awareness state, what happens is your blood, your, your heart starts pumping, uh, adrenaline, get, a chemical gets produced by your body, pushed into your heart, out through into your blood, and you become superhuman for a moment. And in that superhuman state, you can make very quick, focused decisions that are intended to help you navigate this difficult situation. It's a God-given gift for you. Now think about it for a minute. If you're driving down the road and suddenly a car pulls out in front of you at the last second, if you've been driving for a long time, your body is already trained on what to do to respond to that moment. So the adrenaline pumps. All of a sudden, you can focus out the music. You can focus out the kids screaming. You can focus out the drink that's in your lap that you're trying not to spill. You can stop texting for a moment, and all of a sudden, you can focus, right? And you can slam on your brakes. You can turn whatever direction you need to, and by God's grace, maybe you'll avoid it. This is why they train policemen and firemen and, and special forces and army and all that. They train them over and over and over again. They try to throw scenarios at them. They walk through fake scenarios in case the day ever came where something happened. Their body in that moment wouldn't just respond emotionally but would respond to the training. But it's a God-given gift. But what happens is if you have repeated trauma over time, your brain gets hardwired around the trauma. There are amazing studies out today. If you shoot me an email later this week, I'd love to, to, to just tell you, go read these links, go read these books, you'll learn more about it. So imagine a scenario where you grew up in a home where there was repeated fear. It could be the fear of not having food. It could be the fear of severe punishment. It could be the fear of pain. It could be the fear of abandonment and not being loved or nurtured or cared for the way God has designed a family to act. And what happens over time is your brain starts to re-hardwire around the fear. So then a trigger comes, and later in life what happens is you respond the way you started to in that moment. Most of you have heard of fight or flight, right? Corner an animal goes into fight or flight mode. There's actually four responses. I've renamed them myself. Let's go put these up. So when you're in a hyper-awareness mode, hyper, um, yeah, let's just call it hyper-awareness mode, you go into fight or flight. Now, I want you to imagine with me on this TV, like just ignore this for a second. Imagine this TV is just normal life activity. In everyday life, you're kind of up and down, right? You wake up in the morning. Most of you, although some of you are weird and I don't get it, most of you in the morning probably wake up. You're, you're down here, and then you get your cup of coffee, or you get going, or you go exercise, and you're up here, right? And you kind of throughout the day, you get good news, you get bad news, you eat lunch, you exercise, you whatever, you get something happy, you talk to a loved one, and you go up and down within a healthy range of normalcy. There's nothing wrong with that. That's normal. You get stressful situations, blah, blah, blah. All these things happen. That's okay. But what happens in, in a continuous traumatic environment where you have continuous stress of certain kinds, you go into one of these two states where you have a hyper-awareness. We would call that fight or flight. So what happens is you don't just stay in here normal. You go up here beyond normal into this heightened awareness state. You may know a loved one or a friend or a child or a parent, and this explains them. And when you hear their story, and I have people like this in my life, and you find out about the trauma of their youth, you find out about the angry parent who used to come home and beat everybody. And then in a moment, something crazy could happen. Something that doesn't make sense. Like they're driving down the road and somebody passes them. And all of a sudden they go, whoop. And you're like, what just happened? And all of a sudden, that person just deeply offended them. Like it is on. Like where did this come from? 
what happened is through the long periods of trauma, they chose a fight response to stress. Some of you choose a flight response. Things get hard in your marriage or in your relationships and you just got to get out. That's got to get away. And you've never really thought about it, but now that I'm saying this, you go, you know, it does seem like I lose all my friends. And some of you, though, you go the opposite direction. So you're here normally, but then something happens, a certain trigger or a certain thing, and it reminds you of something from your past, and you go into a hypo-awareness state, and you come down here. And that we would call, I call that fright or fold, just so it has four Fs, you know, because I'm a preacher, and I like that. Fright or fold. Fright would be this. You just constantly stress. I can't sleep at night. My mind is racing. I'm just anxious all the time. My stomach is in knots. I'm not really necessarily doing anything about it. I'm not ready to fight or run away. I just worry all the time. The other one is fold. And the only example I really have is think of an opossum. And I know you may, you may think, that's crazy, right? But you ever look at an opossum and you're like, how does that work? Like, God actually made that. Like, God afraid. <laughs> like, but some of you, you get so paralyzed by the fear, the anxiety, that you shut down. You can't make decisions. You don't know what to do next. People come to you and say, what do you want to do? I don't know. I don't know. I, like, I can't think straight. Your brain has stopped being able to process information. So let's give a scenario real quick and walk through this. So let's just say, don't put this up yet. Let's just say, you go to the store to buy some food. One of the items you pick up is a bag of grapes. Because your kids love grapes. you got some company coming over. Who doesn't love a bag of grapes sitting in the middle of the table? So you go home, you dump those grapes into the bowl, and when you reach down to pick up a grape, you see some movement. So you look down and you see this. Now, uh, they had to change the picture for quality. The original picture I had, I, don't, I think this is a black widow. I don't, the original picture, I don't know if it was a black widow. So true story, if I'm understanding the article correctly, there's articles on this on the internet. Over in New Zealand, they have a problem with this. There's a little spider called a red back, and it's got a red back. That's where it got its name. And uh, they were finding them in all their grapes because the red back has the ability to hold its breath for 10 minutes. So when they spray the insecticides all over the grapes, the red back goes... <gasps> And they're getting people who are taking their grapes home, and they're finding that all the time over there. So here's what happens, right? You pour the grapes into the bowl. You go to eat one, and all of a sudden, you see a spider. What's the first thing you do? Ah! Now, if you're a guy, you go, oh, sir. Just a spider. Hey, baby, would you get that? (laughs) Right? Now, what happens in that moment is your brain goes from high-level processing to low-level processing. High-level processing is rational, but low-level processing is that adrenaline pumping, you know, you focus in. So in that moment, you go low-level processing, ah, I jump back. Why? Because if this thing bites me, that's bad news. So I jump back to put distance between us. But as soon as your body starts to regulate and come back down, you go back to high-level processing, and all of a sudden you can focus. You go, dude, I'm like a thousand times its size. Bring it. You didn't have a chance. But what happens is if you've been in a fear state for a long time, anxious, stressed out for a long time, you stop going into that logical high brain thinking, you stay in that emotional, you just get caught in this cycle. And you can't find your way out. You don't know what's going to happen. And some of you, this is ringing very, very, very true this morning. But let's be honest, if we're not talking about spiders, but we're talking about cancer and divorce and income, and housing, and all these things that can be very, very, very real. What do we do about it? Well, I just want to tell you this. The first thing I want to say to you, the first piece of wisdom I want to give you is to ask the question, why is totally human? It is the most human thing you can do. Recently, I I got called emergency situation. A, A lady in our church called us who was in hysterics. If you knew her story, you would just sit and weep with her and understand why she was how she was and where she is. So I cleared my schedule. I went downtown and I sat with her. And because of the situation, she had to hold it together, not just for days or weeks, but for months. She had to hold it together for her family and for everybody else around her. But finally, holding it together, her body could only take so much. And she literally has just falling apart. And while sitting there talking to her, she's asking her these questions of why, and I feel so guilty, and if it's like I don't trust God, but I do, and I just don't understand, and, and what's this passage, and help me understand, and, and she's going through all these questions, and I finally just said, take a deep breath, take a deep breath. It is okay to not be okay. It is okay to be feeling everything you're feeling. I totally understand why you're angry, and you're wondering, God, where are you? 
Why did you let this happen? I totally understand why you, why you feel guilty for that because you love God and you trust God, but you're wondering what he's going to do next and you don't know how the future is going to work out. And there are all these things that are yet to be figured out and navigated a plan. I get it. But for just one moment, allow yourself to just be in this moment, feeling whatever you're feeling. See, to ask the question why is to have the human experience. And before you spiritualize that and rationalize that, it is totally biblical. Think about it. Jesus hanging on the cross. My God, my God, what? Why? Why have you forsaken me? Did God forsake Jesus? No. Now, here's the rational side of us, the, the, the pastor scholar side of me. He's actually quoting David in the Psalms. So, by the way, David said it first, but we know that David, it was amazing. He would write these Psalms. He'd be talking about his story and Jesus' story at the same time. And his prophecy in that way was amazing. But some would say, well, Jesus is pointing us back to the Psalms to say, go read that Psalm. And it is amazing. Go read that Psalm, how much it points to Jesus. But I go, that's to make Jesus not human. Now, we know that Jesus was fully God and fully man. He had no problem being both. We have a problem with him being both. He is crying out, why, God? In this moment, he's carrying the weight of all the sins of mankind, past, present, future. It's on him for the first time and only time in his existence. He has been separated from his father. You think he's anxious? It's the source of love and life and nurturing and hope and resource that Jesus has been with for all eternity. And now he's separated from it. Why? It's a natural question to ask. But know this also. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 says this. This high priest of ours, that's Jesus, he understands our weakness for he faced all the same things we do, yet he did not sin. Now we read this and what we say to ourselves is, well, that means Jesus experienced pride like I do and he just never gave in. And Jesus experienced greed like I do and he never gave in. And Jesus experienced lust like I did and he never gave in. And the answer to all that is yes, absolutely, of course. But he's human. That means he experienced every weak question moment that we did. Think about it logically for just a moment. Was Jesus ever angry? I'd say when Jesus went to the temple and he sees people panhandling for God, they're not really honoring God. They're selling sacrifices to rip off the people and make money. Jesus gets a little perturbed. He starts throwing tables all over the place. Yeah, I'd say Jesus gets angry. You ever watch the way Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for their harsh treatment of the people caught in sin? I'd say, yeah, Jesus gets a little angry. Does Jesus ever cry? We know the shortest verse in the entire Bible is in John, right? Jesus wept. And this week in my, one of my quiet times, I, I, there was a story in the book of Luke I completely forgot. I mean, like, I've read this book many times. By the way, if you ever think you know God's word so good you don't have to read it, you're wrong. Trust me. I was reading, I was reading the Bible, and I literally, I told my wife, last, I'm like, I don't remember this book I don't, or this story. So here's the story. Jesus has done a bunch of teaching. He's done a bunch of miracles. He's doing all these amazing things. And one day, he's walking along with his disciples and coming the other direction. They have to stop and pull over to the side. Like we would during a funeral procession, same thing happening. There's a big funeral procession coming, and this widow, that tells you her husband's dead her only son has died and it tells us in the passage i believe it's in luke 6 i think it is that jesus had compassion as the word splagna he literally something in him just moved deeply and jesus felt so compelled because he felt for this woman's pain she's going to be left to beg the rest of her life for help and so jesus goes over and raises him from the dead jesus felt just like you and just like me. In the garden, was Jesus afraid? Absolutely. He was so stressed out, he cried, and his blood uh, was like, or his sweat was like blood pouring from his brow. Doctors tell us there's a, there's a medical phenomenon known as hematidrosis. It's very possible the capillaries in his forehead burst, mixing blood with sweat, which is extremely painful. But Jesus is so stressed out in the garden and this is important, guys, because when we come to Jesus, we don't come to a Savior who doesn't understand. We come to a Savior who knows everything we've been through and did not sin. What does that mean? He is fully capable of leading you also. Here's what I'm not saying. So fast and pray more and it'll all go away. Here's what I am saying. You are 
And, and it's just, just four. I could probably add at least one more and maybe others. But you are a physical, emotional, relational, and spiritual being. So coping with anxiety, stress, needs to consider all four of these areas. I would also add you are probably a sexual being. But I would put that in physical as well. And that's something to work out for some of you struggling in that area. Your wife was a gift from God. Your husband was a gift from God. That's what the scriptures teach us. 1 Corinthians 7, your body is not your own. It was a gift from God, each other, to help each other through these temptations. But let's just talk about these for a minute. Physical, emotional, relational, spiritual beings. Physical. I don't know if you know this, but it is astounding what happens to our bodies when we eat poorly. I have put on probably 25 pounds, and that's being on the low end in the last two years. It's been a stressful season in my home and at my church, and I've not taken care of myself, and I have felt it in many other areas as a result of it. And I consistently hear the voice of God saying, Matt, your body is my temple. Care for it. Care for it. I love you. Care for it. There's not a guilt and condemnation message coming from God saying, come on, it's my temple. No, no, it's I love you. I love you. I got your family. I've got your church. I've got you. Take care of yourself. If you ever really want to pursue this more, take, check out the book Sugar Nation. Sugar Nation. It's just the first part of the book is boring as I'll get out. It's just study after study after study of all the ways sugars deplete our body. It makes your body uh, uh, less immune to disease. It wears you out. What sugar does is it gives you this immediate spike. You could take on the world. You're going to take on everything. And you could do amazing things. But what happens is it's followed by a crash. And when your body crashes, you feel like you're a failure. I can't do anything. So what do you do? You go drink more sugar. So then you get back up and you go back down and you get back up. And this is depleting for your body. We are the most caffeinated nation in the history of the world. Amen. Just saying. I'm on my second one already. By the way, I could not come down after that Buckeye game last night. I was so anxious, I couldn't come down. So what am I doing? I'm living on caffeine to get through this morning. But what's that going to do? I'm going to pay for it all day long. So if you drink caffeine, you should drink it only in the morning. You should probably drink only one cup a day. If you drink it afternoon, you will find you have trouble sleeping at night. Every study in the world shows this. Are there exceptions to the rule? Yes. I had one student who swore to me he drank Mountain Dew right before bed every night and it never bothered him. I don't know if he's right or wrong. I'm not in his body, but I'll tell you, every study in the world says, while you may fall asleep, your brain never really shuts off, and you deplete your body over time if you do this. I highly recommend you cut back your caffeine intake. By the way, did you know there's caffeine in chocolate? Why? It's the human question, right? Take everything good from us. Shouldn't eat ice cream and chocolate and desserts after dinner. If you're going to do it after breakfast, right? Why not? <laughs> Your parents said it was wrong. But you're a physical being, and you were created to be in motion. You were created to be in sunlight. So if you work in dark places, you need to get out. You need to take your lunch break. You need to get real sunlight. Sunlight actually produces vitamins for your body. Do not deny the fact that you are physical. And some of you, some of you may have, for genetic reasons or whatever, I don't understand, you may have some sort of propensity towards anxiety. And you may need to see a doctor and get some help. Okay? You are not a failure because the doctor needed to prescribe some medicine for you. But here's what my first counselor taught my wife and I. My wife struggles with anxiety. She's given me her blessing to say that. Here's what we learned from her first counselor. Medicine alone rarely fixes the problem. It can help mask it. It rarely fixes it. Rarely fixes it. Counseling alone rarely fixes the problem. For some people it can. But oftentimes the two combined can do amazing things. So let's keep going because I'll talk more about that in a moment. Emotionally. Far too often we ignore our feelings or we rationalize our feelings or we justify them. I shouldn't be happy right now. Someone just died. But if you're happy, you're happy. My one friend and mentor said, Matt, feelings are feelings. They just are. You can't argue with them. They just are. You just feel the way you feel. And you actually do damage, stress to your body when you try to deny how you're actually feeling. You know what that means? Men, the next time you're watching a chick flick and it really does make you want to cry, just let it go, man. <laughs> let it go. Let it go. I hold it. If you cry during that, we got to talk. You lose a man card. <laughs> kidding, kidding. I did cry during Cars, the movie. Just true story. All right. <laughs> feelings are simply feelings. Jesus had sadness. Jesus had anger. Jesus had fear. Feelings are feelings. Let yourself be human. Don't try to rationalize them. Not first, okay? At some point, you have to have a conversation with yourself and others, and we'll get to that in just a moment, but you have to start with feeling what you're feeling. 
If a mountain lion comes out when you're hiking through the woods and you say, I shouldn't be feeling afraid right now, would that make any sense? So would it make any sense if a loved one dies and you feel sad? Would it make any sense if somebody tells a joke after a loved one dies and you want to laugh? Would it make any sense? Feelings are simply feelings. You're human. Be human. Notice you are called a human being, by the way, and not a human doing by God. So be human. One of the greatest gifts that you can give yourself is this, the gift of permission. Permission to feel whatever you're feeling and not try to explain it away or hide it. Hide it. That's a big problem. Because the next thing is this, relationally. You are a relational being. I wish I had more time. This is a whole sermon in itself, and I don't. I'm way over on time as it is. Do you realize that God has always been in community? You cannot refer to God as they. You can't. Because God says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Therefore, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. God is one. But we get these little passages that tell us about God is one. God is three in one. We call this mystery the Trinity. And it is a mystery. But we also have pictures of it on earth. Marriage is a picture of Trinity. What that means is this. Uh, husband, wife, children, they are all one. They're one. They're a family unit. Now, in our sin-filled world, we get lots of rebellion and fighting and backbowering and dividing. Back, just just backbowering? I don't know what that is. Uh, backbiting and devouring. That's backbowering. We get a lot of this, but this is not who God was. The son, we learn in Philippians 2, we already talked about this. The son doesn't see equality with God as something to attain, but he's already equal to God. Instead, he lives his life in submission to him. Why? Because of love. God has always been in a loving relationship. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. No other God out there can say that. Allah is one. That means at some point in history before he made the world, I don't believe Allah actually made the world to be clear. At some point in history, he was alone. Are you with me? And so uh, Islamic scholars will tell you that Allah created to have servants who would do his bidding. One of the most famous uh, Islamic scholars was asked, is Allah loving? And he said, no, he can't be. Because at some point in history, he didn't love. You cannot claim you're loving if you aren't loving. But God has always been loving. He's always been community. And then it says in Genesis, let us, this is God the Father speaking, let us, who's he talking to? The Son and the Spirit make man in our image. So what did he do? He went and created a family. And then in the church, we're found, Jesus says, my brothers, my sisters, who are they? They're not the people biologically connected to me. They're the ones inside the church who believe in me and worship me. So he created a new family. What that means is you were never created to be alone. And most of you believe, those of you who are anxious, most of you believe that uh, you're weak and that's why you're anxious. Am I right? I look at everybody else and I look at all they can handle. And apparently there's something wrong with me. There's a great book out there called The Anxiety Cure. The Anxiety Cure. I recommend it. And in the book, he talks about the anxiety doesn't hit the weak. It actually hits the strong, the capable, those who can look around at all the things they could be doing and should be doing, at least they believe, and they feel like they're failing because they're not. So be encouraged. You're highly capable if you're struggling with anxiety. The problem was you were never created to do all that you're doing, and you definitely weren't created to do it alone. You need to let somebody know that you're struggling. A pastor, a spouse, please start there. Somebody in your life group. By God's grace, we have many good, godly Christian counselors in our church. It's okay to reach out and say, I'm not okay. Three different seasons of my life, I have spent time with a counselor. I probably could use another one. Man, every once in a while, I just need a tune-up, right, to keep the engine running good. I heard Henry Cloud, who's actually a counselor, a fantastic Christian uh, author, he, he said this in some video I was watching today. I thought it was great. He said, anytime you're stuck, you need to insert an outside system into your regular uh, routines in order to get you out of the stuck place. And for him, he told a story. He kept putting on weight as he was traveling and speaking, and he kept trying to eat healthier, and he'd exercise, and that last for a couple weekends, but then he'd go right back to the old habits, and he realized he was stuck. So he went and he hired a personal trainer. He inserted into a system, an outside system, in order to change his normal pattern. Sometimes you have to get out of a rut by reaching out and saying, I need help. Would someone help me? Lastly, lastly, and you're like, we haven't even looked at the Bible. We're getting there, I promise. All of this is going to make sense for the second hour of this message. <laughs> now you're anxious. Spiritual beings. We are spiritual beings. And guys, we live in a physical world, but it's not just physical. It's both and. And I know for some of you new at this, it may be weird, but there's something new that says it's true. We are spiritual beings, and we are engaged in a spiritual war even as we sit here. You cannot deny 
that there's an enemy wanting to destroy you. So live in an anxious state the rest of your life and you let the enemy win. So now in light of all that, let's take a look at Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. I want you to look at verse 6. Let's see the wisdom the Bible says about anxiety and what we're to do with it. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, don't worry about anything. Well, easy for you to say, Paul, you don't know what I'm going through. Let me just remind you what Paul's going through. He's in prison writing this book. He's been arrested for teaching people about Jesus. Go read, I wish I could remember where in Corinthians it is, but you read that Paul has been shipwrecked, starved, without resources, abandoned by his friends, cut down by the churches he loved and served. He's been beaten, arrested, thrown in prison, and actually stoned to death and left for dead once. An angel Lord came, woke him up, said, go back, you need to preach. Okay. I'd say Paul understands a bit of anxiety. So to think that Paul is just telling you to get over it. No, 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 no. Paul is one who has walked the path and is telling you this is doable. So don't be anxious. Don't worry about anything. Instead, do what? Pray about everything. Pray about what? Only pray about the really bad stuff. You mean God cares about everything? Well, Paul says pray about what? Everything. Everything? Everything. I mean, there might be a direct connection to your prayer life and your anxiety life. There might be. I'm not going to over-spiritualize this because you are physical, relational, emotional beings. But there might be a direct connect here. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he's done. What, God, what Paul's trying to do is create in you a heart of thankfulness. God, I realize I'm stressed out about this, but when I look back over my life at all of this, man, I realize I don't know how this is going to work out. I don't, but I trust you. You've got this long track record, not just in my life, but in history, in my family, all around me, that even when things are terrible, I see your hand. I sit with couples who don't yet understand God, and I tell them, I want you to look back over your life and look for where God was moving, because he was moving. Even in the most tragic of abusive and terrible situations where you're going, God, why did you let this happen? And I, I know that God wept with you. He was in the room holding you while it happened. But I want you to go back and look because I guarantee you God was moving things and doing things. There were people and places and provisions and situations popping up. And if you'll just open your eyes, you could go, thank you, God. Because even in the midst of terrible suffering, you were good. You were good. And Paul says, then, then, when you do this, you will experience God's, what? Peace. Which exceeds anything we can understand. I believe it's the NIV that says, which passes all understanding. When I get with people going through a hard time, this is often what I pray. God, would you give them the peace that only you can give? It's a gift from him. But the gift comes through connecting with our Father. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. Now, let me show this to you. I hope I can make this clear. So I told you earlier that we're told the Shema, that love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, right? So Jesus is asked the question, what's the most important commandment? What's the one thing we need to do? Jesus answers it this way. In Luke chapter 10, verse 27, <coughs> the man answered. Sorry, it's Jesus answered. Actually, the man answered Jesus. Sorry, let me get that right. The man answers Jesus. Jesus agrees. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. So here we have Jesus saying the two greatest commandments are these two things. I want you to see this for a minute. Do we have physical, spiritual, relational, and emotional things covered? Heart, mind, soul, strength, neighbor, Jesus gives you the pattern. Care for these areas of your life. Give all of them to God. He will take care of you. So let's go back to Philippians chapter 4. Let me just show you real quick. Philippians chapter 4. We already read this. Verse 6. I'm just going to go through this quickly. So don't worry about anything. Instead, do what? Pray. What is that? This should be the next slide. Go to the next slide. I got these words in there. It should say soul. Right to it. There you go. Soul. What are you doing? You're caring for your soul by praying to God. You put that what? First. Tell God what you need. <gasps> what do we have there? Strength. Your physical body. So Paul's mentoring a young pastor. His name is Timothy, and Timothy's getting sick to his stomach. And Paul doesn't say, well, Timothy, you just need to pray and fast more. You just got to give it to God. What's Paul say? Go drink a little wine, and you'll take care of your sick tummy. And what's going on? They got nasty bacteria in the water. Ask our missionaries about this. So they would mix alcohol with their water in order to kill the bacteria. And Paul's saying, you need to, you need to take care of the physical side of things. 
Man, I got an even better story. I wish I had time. I wish I had another 20 minutes. I won't. But there's a story in the Old Testament. His name is Elijah. And Elijah is a prophet. He just had a mountaintop experience. He literally went toe-to-toe with the best and the best false prophets of, of the land. And the king and the queen right now are leading all of God's people away. And he calls them to task. And they have this mountaintop experience. And God literally shows up, shows fire from heaven. And it's amazing. And right after that, the queen makes a threat to Elijah. She says, I'm going to find you and I'm going to kill you. And Elijah takes off running for his life. If you don't know that story, you need to go read it later. It's amazing. Because Elijah's so depleted from the journey, he's finally just laying there sleeping. And when he wakes up from a nap, an angel of the Lord has delivered raisin cakes and a drink. And the angel says, wake up, Elijah. Eat. Drink. And then go back to sleep. Elijah goes back to sleep a little longer. He wakes him up. Let's get some more to drink. What does that tell us? The angel didn't show up and say, Elijah, what are you doing? I just rocked it on the mountaintop, idiot. Now, why don't you trust me? Why are you afraid of this woman? She's nothing. She's a queen. No, no, no. The angel shows up and says, Elijah, your strength is gone. You need to eat. You need to sleep. You need to drink. What does that tell you? Your God cares about your physical needs. Jesus says it this way, why are you worried about what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink or what you're going to wear? Don't you know that God sees and God cares? Look at the lilies of the field. Are they not more beautiful than Solomon in all of his splendor? Look at the birds of the air. Does he not make sure that they have everything they need on time? If he takes care of birds and and lilies, don't you think he's going to take care of you? How much more precious are you to him than birds and flowers? So what does he say? Put first God. And he'll work out the rest. In other words, take a deep breath. He's got the whole world in his hands. Look at the next verse, verse 7. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts. Ah, your what? Heart. In your mind, your minds as you live in Christ Jesus. It's almost like Paul listened to what Jesus said. Physical, spiritual, relational, emotional. So what's Paul say next? Let's take a look. Verse 8, verse 8. We're almost done. And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Now, let's just camp out for a minute. What's Paul saying? The reason you're anxious is because you're letting your thoughts run wild. Well, what if this happens? What if that happens? And I don't know if I can control this. And I'm not in control. And I don't have any power. Isn't that the real problem? And I don't know how this is going to work out. And Paul says, just stop for one minute, just take a deep breath. By the way, taking deep breaths can help. It actually deprives your brain of oxygen and forces it to slow down. Now, what am I going to think about? Do I trust God? Do I believe he's sovereign? Do I believe he's ever going to abandon me or quit on me? I don't know how it's going to work out. It might hurt. It might, in fact, actually suck what happens next. However, I know that God is with me, so I'm going to think about that. My, 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 our first counselor, I asked my wife if I could use this illustration. My wife had a, just a number of things that were bothering her. I'm going to give you one that, that's really kind of simple because it's not very personal and intimate. But um, she, she would, at Christmas time, she would teach about Jesus. But in order to get away with that, she was a preschool uh, director at the public school. She would teach about Kwanzaa. She'd teach about these other things. But she'd kind of do like, you know, a half a day on those things and two or three days on Jesus. And um, one day she had a parent who had a concern about that and came to her and, and asked about it and, and just said, I just want to make sure you're not telling the kids this is the right way, the only way. My wife said, no, I'm not doing that. I'm teaching all of them. And uh, that was true. And uh, the principal at that same time also had a child in the class. And the principal came to her and said, look, I'm not, I'm not like, okay with this. I'm not at peace with this. And, and Rachel said, well, are you telling me I can't do it or are you telling me you don't want me to do it? And uh, the, the principal, I don't know what he was afraid or what. He's like, well, I'm not telling you you can't, but I'm telling you if we get complaints, then we're going to have to talk. Well, Rachel was stressed out. Like, I know I'm supposed to do this. I'm going to do it. But she was anxious about it. And so we're sitting with that counselor and he, t- he taught us this little game. He calls it the what if game. He said, okay, so let's just walk through this, Rachel. What if, what if you teach it and a parent complains? Tell me the absolute worst thing that could happen. Well, they'd probably go to the principal and complain and maybe write up a report. So what is the absolute worst that could happen? Well, I could get written up for it and it'd probably get stuck in my file. And while that would be embarrassing and shameful, that's not the worst thing that could happen. What's the worst? Well, I could get fired and I could get in trouble for it and actually be let go. Okay, so what's the worst thing that happens if you get fired? 
Well, our entire lifestyle is built around my income, and so we might lose our house. I get the feeling our parents and other people would chip in. We could dip into our retirement. We could probably pull it off for a month or two or longer. I don't know, but so, so what's the worst? Give me the worst. So what's the worst that can happen? Well, the worst thing that would happen is I'd probably have to go get a different job. Okay, where would you go get a job? you have any idea? Well, I love, I love the pottery place. I would totally go work at the pottery place, make pottery people all day. Okay, what else? Well, I'd probably go work at this farm. I've always wanted to work at this farm. I love going there and visiting all the time. So the worst thing that happened, if you do the thing that God is calling you to do, is you would lose your job and get a job you like just as much. You might have to downsize your lifestyle and not go out to eat as much or not have as much fun. You might actually have to sell your house and move back into an apartment. That's the worst thing that could happen is for being faithful. Well, yeah, I guess when you put it like that, is that so bad? So what are you thinking about? Are you thinking about the fact that God's going to work it out? Are you thinking about the fact that it's not going to work out the way you wanted it to work out? And what does he say next? Verse 9. Keep putting into practice all you learned and received from me, everything you heard from me and saw me doing, and then the God of peace will be with you. What's the last thing Jesus said to his disciples? I am with you to the very end. Jesus is with you right now. Cast all your cares onto him because he cares for you. I'm going to leave you with this piece of wisdom. Don't let your context determine your contentment. I know that's a complex phrase. Don't let your situation, your context, determine your joy. Don't let your context determine your contentment. Whatever you're going through right now, do not let it be in charge of how you feel. Choose joy in the Lord He's your strength. That's why Paul says this in Philippians 4, 4 and 5. Always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. And let everyone see that you are considerate in all you do. Remember, the Lord is coming soon. What do you have to be stressed about, brothers and sisters? Jesus will be here soon. So fix your eyes. Let's do that right now in prayer. Father in heaven, We thank you right here, right now in this moment for your goodness and your faithfulness. God, there is some real stress and anxiety in this room, online, watching this message. God, we don't know how. We don't know what you're going to do. We don't know where it's going to come from, your provision, your care, but we trust you. You're going to see us through this. If you see us to it, you will see us through it. So we hang on to that, Lord, in faith, in Jesus' name.